We glory in your cross, O Lord, for by your holy cross you have redeemed the world. Amen. You may be seated. Many people think of Martin Luther uh, when they think of him. Most people envision an impassioned young monk defiantly hammering 95 theses to a door in Wittenberg. In actuality, Luther had no idea that those 95 theses, which he intended to be just an in-house academic debate, would spark the wildfire that it did. Things would escalate quickly in the year following his posting the 95 Theses, because he touched a sensitive nerve with the Church of Rome. But it would not be until that following year after the 95 Theses that this relatively obscure Augustinian monk from the tiny town of Wittenberg would have the opportunity to present a more comprehensive expression of his theology. And it was there in 1518 at the Heidelberg Disputation, that Luther presented a few of his key theological insights that would set off a groundswell and take the world by storm. One of those key insights was this. He said that if you want to understand Christianity, you have to understand the cross. What he actually said was that if you don't understand the cross, you're going to end up calling that which is evil good, and that which is good, evil. According to Luther, only a theologian of the cross sees things as they truly are. And of all the days of the year to probe Luther's insight into the understanding of what is truly good, Good Friday is certainly most appropriate. There is much obscurity and confusion when it comes to the cross of Christ today. The cross has become such a popular symbol that seldom does anybody give it a second thought. It can be found almost everywhere, from around the necks of celebrities on TV to within the polite homes of Southerners where it serves as a nice uh, piece of home decor. If one was to stop and think, he'd probably realize how utterly strange it is that it's become such a popular symbol, donned by even non-Christians. After all, the crucifixion, uh, and and crucifixion in general, is widely believed to be one of the most heinous forms of torture in human history. Cicero said this about crucifixion, "...to bind a Roman citizen is a crime, to flog him an abomination, to kill him almost an act of murder, to crucify him, well, what, what is it? There's no fitting word." that can possibly describe such a horrific deed. Imagine how bizarre it would be if you came into my house and saw a little guillotine sitting in the corner of my living room. Or if you saw a well-respected member of society adorning a necklace with a tiny electric chair on it. This is exactly what the cross of Christ symbolizes. The cross is the device of death par excellence. And the fact that the chief symbol of Christianity would be a cross was certainly no foregone conclusion. There could have been a number of images that would have suited Christianity well. You could have had a a manger that symbolized Jesus' birth, or a throne to symbolize His reign, or 
a boat perhaps to symbolize his teaching ministry, or even a stone rolled away from a tomb to symbolize his resurrection. But it was, his, it was this instrument of death that would become the central sign associated with his followers. And you can imagine why this would be so confusing to the world today. What other religion glories in the death of its founder? Certainly, to misunderstand the cross is to misunderstand Jesus and Christianity altogether. So we have to ask, why is the cross so central to the Christian faith? What is its significance? Today is known as Good Friday, where we celebrate, yes, celebrate the death of Jesus. And take a look at the front of your bulletins. We must ask, how in the world could that be in any real sense be called good? Well, in fact, there are a number of reasons why it's good. And in the time that we have, I want to offer just three to you. Why is the cross good? Well, the first reason the cross is good is because it wasn't an accident. If you watch one of those programs on the History Channel about Jesus, in all likelihood, you'll walk away from it thinking that the death of Jesus was just a sad accident of history. Here was an itinerant preacher whose central message of radical love and forgiveness often offended the wrong people, and it ultimately got him killed at their hands as a result. For many modern scholars, Jesus' death was just a sad travesty, something that could have been avoided if he was perhaps maybe a little more fortunate. But how does God's Word depict Jesus' death? It records from Jesus' own lips that his death was central to his coming. Jesus said that the Son of Man, his favorite term for himself, that he must suffer many things and be rejected by the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. While his death, death was in some sense a result of his teaching, it was not incidental to his mission. Mark 10 says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So yes, while Jesus' death came about through the hands of sinful men, this was not the ultimate cause of his death. No, the ultimate cause of his death is made very clear by Peter in his sermon in Acts chapter 2 where he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty words and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Yes, Jesus was betrayed by Judas. Yes, he was arrested and underwent a sham of a trial. But all of this, the Scriptures say, were secondary causes. The primary, the ultimate cause for the cross of Christ was the definite plan of God. Jesus' crucifixion, while tragic, was not a tragedy. It was not some unfortunate mishap. It was not some strange twist of fate. No, Jesus couldn't have been clearer than what He says in the parable of the Good Shepherd when He says that I am the Good Shepherd and I lay down My life for the sheep. I lay down My life that I may take it up again. 
No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. According to Jesus Himself, His death was not incidental, but deliberate and central to His very purpose. And that's the first reason why the cross is good. The cross is good because it is intentional and the climactic moment of God's rescue mission. And that leads us to the second reason. Secondly, the cross is good because it was the only solution to our greatest problem. If the death of Christ on the cross was intentional, what on earth would warrant such a horrific act? We get a glimpse of the answer in the Gospels when Jesus he goes out to pray on the Mount of Olives before His arrest. He takes Peter and James and John with Him and He asks them to watch and pray as He goes a little further by Himself. And He falls on His faith, face and He prays to His Father saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as You will. What is this cup that Jesus refers to? Was it the mental distress of the physical pain that awaited Him? Was it the rejection and betrayal by His own people that He was about to experience? What was meant by this cup? Well, I want to submit that Jesus knew His Bible really well. He knew that throughout the Old Testament, the cup of the Lord served as a symbol of the wrath of God poured out on sin. This then indicates that there is far more going on at the cross than meets the eye. The task that lay before Jesus was not merely dying a physical death, but a spiritual one. The mission of Jesus was to remedy man's greatest problem, and that is sin, by undergoing the curse of sin Himself. You see, my friends, Good Friday is only good when you consider this notion of sin. That every single one of us have gone our own way and set ourselves up as our own master. And in turning our backs on our Creator, we have not only forsaken what is good, but we have incurred a debt to God. And taking the place of God and robbing Him of the honor that He is due, we've incurred an infinite debt against an infinite and holy God. We are rendered guilty before Him. And as a result, we're separated from Him because of our sin. You see, if anything defiled comes into this holy God's presence, it would be immediately consumed. For in Him there is no darkness at all. The Scripture says that our God is a consuming fire. So given such a predicament, the only solution to our plight is to have a substitute die in our place to atone for our sins since the wages of sin is death. And you see throughout the Bible, there are numerous glimpses of this. In our Genesis reading, it's the ram in the thicket. In Exodus, it's the Passover lamb. Throughout the Old Testament, it's the entire sacrificial system. But the pattern is always the same. The guilty are pardoned through the sacrifice of another. The unblemished for the blemished. The righteous for the unrighteous. All of this points to the ultimate reality of the cross. St. Anselm put it like this, that no one could pay our infinite debt but God alone. Yet no one should pay the debt except man alone. 
And so we have the ultimate solution. The sacrifice of one who is both God and man. So the eternal Word became flesh in the person of Jesus, and His gaze was always set to this hill called Golgotha. And I know that what I'm saying is two common objections to it. I think the first is to slander it as a form of divine child abuse. But we must remember that Jesus said that He laid down His life of His own accord. Moreover, such a claim is to fundamentally misunderstand who Jesus really is. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. And as such, He is the judge who renders the guilty verdict upon humanity. It's not as if the Father picks an innocent bystander to have die on the cross. Instead, what happens is like this. Jesus is the just judge of the universe, and He hammers His gavel, rightly pronouncing the world guilty. And then He gets up from His chair, and He steps back, and He takes off His robes, and comes down to the place of the guilty, and He takes the sentence upon Himself. Jesus is, the both, is both the divine King and the voluntary victim who lays down His life of His own accord. And the second objection involves the notion of forgiveness. Some say, well, God could have just forgiven without exacting some sort of punishment or payment. Isn't that what mercy is after all? But again, this, my friends, misunderstands the nature of forgiveness and the nature of God. Whether it's justice or revenge or forgiveness, there is always a price that is paid. Justice renders a fair punishment to the, to the offender. Revenge makes the offender pay over and above what is owed. But with forgiveness, the offended absorbs the debt himself. In essence, the offender pays off the debt. Forgiveness always comes at a cost. And the greater the offense, the greater the personal cost that is absorbed. So any way you slice it, there is a cost that has to be paid. Furthermore, the cross is where God's justice and His forgiveness meet. God is in fact both merciful in and just in His very nature. And if He weren't just, we wouldn't have any hope in the face of the injustices that you and I face every day. So the only solution that deals effectively with our sin, yet remains true to God's nature, is this solution of the cross. And is where His justice and His mercy converge. And because of the cross, guilty sinners can be declared righteous. Those who are separated from God can be brought near to Him. And those who sit under His wrath can enjoy the fellowship of His presence and His favor and being adopted as His beloved children. Well, that leads me to the third and final reason why the cross is good. Not only is the cross not an accident, not only does it deal effectively with our greatest problem, but the cross also is a source for a transformed life. It's the only source for a transformed life. 1 John 4.19 puts it succinctly. It says, We love because He first loved us. If you want to become a more loving person, both towards God and others, you must probe the depths of the cross. You must see the wondrous love of God displayed there for you. 
I have found that weddings are a wonderful opportunity to talk about the love of God displayed at the cross because weddings are all about love. But our world has a very stunted understanding of love. And even when it sets its heights as high as God does, it lacks the power and the resources to love as He does and as He calls us to. So at every wedding that I do, I inevitably end up going back to Luther's Heidelberg Disputation. The final point that Luther makes at Heidelberg is one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard in the English language outside of the Scriptures. He says this, The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. And that flies in the face, does it not, of how humans love. We set out to find that which is pleasing to us, and then we set our affection on it. But that's not so with God. He doesn't go out searching for the lovely or the worthy. Instead, He he sets His affection on His beloved, and through His love, she becomes lovely. His love transforms the objects of His affection. When the love of God displayed at the cross settles into your heart, it results in nothing short of a change of your very nature. Our hearts of stone are replaced with hearts of flesh. And we, in turn, can love as He has loved us. We can now take the initiative to restore relationships when we're offended. We can endure slander and rejection and hardship when we cling to the truth and invite repentance. We can withhold revenge knowing that God has, in fact, forgiven us at no cost to us, but at an infinite cost to Himself. Well, let me close by bringing this close to home in just two ways. First, let me warn you not to neglect the cross of Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that two of the most common responses to the cross of Christ are to see it as a stumbling block and as an offense, as utter foolishness. And many Jews who heard about this crucified Messiah, they were tripped up over this claim. Their king wasn't supposed to be uh, some dying servant. He was supposed to be a conquering hero. And the Gentiles who valued strength and honor saw a crucified God as utter foolishness. And my friends, today we face these same temptations. We are tempted to downplay our sins. Sure, we'll we'll maybe admit that we're not perfect, but we won't go so far as to say that we are in dire straits, that we are helpless in and of ourselves. You see, the human heart always longs to justify itself before God and other people. So recall the story of the parable of the prodigal son. Andrew preached on it a couple weeks ago. One son is clearly bad. He asks for an inheritance from his father, in essence wishing that his father was dead, so that he can get his share, and then he goes off and he squanders it in reckless living. But the scandal of the parable isn't that. The scandal is that at the end of the story, it's not the younger brother who was the reckless one that ends up being separated from the father. It was the older, self-righteous brother. The one who stayed home and on the surface did all the right things. He's the one at the end standing on the outside looking in. And Jesus in that parable puts His finger on a perennial problem for good, successful, religious people. 
It's not their bad deeds that often separate them from the Father, but rather, as someone has said, it's their damnable good ones. The problem for smart, hard-working, productive people is that they can become blind to their true estate and their need for forgiveness in the first place. It's not so much about their bad deeds, but the pride in the good ones. That's their greatest danger. We must see that our situation is so dire that nothing short of the death of the Son of God could remedy it. And in turn, we must not trust in how religious or how successful or how smart we are or how kind or anything in ourselves, but only in this atoning death of Jesus Christ. And that leads me to ask this all-important question. I'll close with this. What say you of the cross of Christ? Is it it's not enough to know, my friends, that He died for you, that He died for the sins of the world, rather, but you must know that He died personally for you. It was your sins that held Him there. You must appropriate what He did for you. It wasn't enough in Noah's day to merely agree with Noah that the rain was coming. You had to get inside the ark and take shelter. So you too must get inside of Christ, so to speak, whose blood covers you and puts you on solid ground. You must personally lay hold of Him by faith, which is simply opening the hands of your heart to receive what He has done for you. My friends, what say you of the cross of Christ? There is no more pressing question. There's no greater love that you can behold. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. It is finished, Jesus said. And He bowed His head and gave up His spirit.